Um, we're going we're gonna to be in, in the book of Exodus. We've just got, uh, this is the second to last message in a 12-week series we've been doing. And so if you have a Bible and contains Exodus chapter 32, Exodus 32, that would be great. Um, we have just got one more week after this. And the story, if you like, just sort of simply told, if, if you don't know the Exodus story well, is that Israel were in slavery for 400 years in Egypt and God has redeemed them and brought them out. And we've seen that story told in some detail over a few weeks and he's provided for all of their needs and he's destroyed all their enemies and he's established his covenant with them at Mount Sinai. And that's where they are now. And they have a pillar of cloud with them during the day, a pillar of fire with them during the night. They have God's laws, they have God's promises, they have... Uh, God's gifts to them. They have bread literally falling out of the sky in the morning and they are on their way to a land flowing with milk and honey and they all live happily ever after. Except that they don't. Um, In fact, they don't even live happily ever after for the next 40 days. And we're going to find out why this morning. What is it that went wrong in their story that meant that the rest of the Bible and the rest of redemption was needed? What why does it not go that way? Why do they not live happily ever after, given all of the successes we've read in this book? Because it's really a book of triumph, isn't it? They are oppressed at the beginning, and God breaks the power of the oppressor and liberates them. Hallelujah. It's a wonderful story, except it actually has this massive fall moment in it, this failure moment in it. And we need to look at it both to see what happened to Israel, but also to see what happens to us. Because you're, you're, what you'll find as we look at it is there are a lot of unnerving parallels between Israel's fall and the fall both in the garden, our first parents, and also the fall, if you like, that many of us, in fact all of us really in different ways go through in our lives, moments where we also lose our our intimacy with God and where we need to repent and be restored. And what I'm going to suggest is that the, the reason why Israel fell is the exact same reason we do, and the exact same reason that Adam did, and that is that Israel built an idol. They built a substitute for God, if you prefer that language. And idol to, to you may sound like it means a literal physical deity, which of course in Israel's case it was. It was a golden calf. We'll read that story in a moment. But actually all of us, whether you like that word or not, all of us make substitutes for God. And in Israel's case it was a physical thing. It was something that they looked to other than the fountain of life to give them meaning and joy. But you and I do that too. We just may not do it with a physical object. Uh, in, in Israel's case, it was a calf or a cow. Uh, in Adam and Eve's case, the substitute for God was themselves, really. The snake said to them, you will be like God. You're, you're going to be the God substitute. It doesn't have to be a statue, it'll be you. In your life or in my life, it may be something other than that that you and I are looking to to provide us with meaning and hope and purpose and reassurance and joy forever. It might be a relationship. It might be a career. Right? Center a career and say, that's the thing that I'm looking to to give me affirmation and meaning and purpose and hope in life. It could be a family. It could be influence. It's a softer word for power, isn't it? But it could be that. I just want to be somebody who really influences and shapes other people's lives. It could be experiences. You say, actually, the thing that I'm looking to for meaning and hope in life is that I want to, I want to see the world. I want to experience this. I want to know what it's like to be that. Whatever those things are, if they are created rather than creator, it will end in tears. That's what this story reveals to us, actually. And it's, I think there's a lot of good common sense reasons to think that as well, as we'll see. But there is nothing created, nothing other than the fountain of life, the creator himself, that is actually big enough 
to satisfy the cravings of the human soul that you have simply by being made in the image of God. Nothing. And we look in all kinds of places, and some of us know already that nothing is large enough because we've tried it, and we've been everywhere. We've tried to make something else our first love. It could have been a lover or a job or a child or a, a substance or a cause. And we've made that the thing that we're going to look to to deliver us, and it hasn't come through. And as good as those things are, by the way, many of them, a lot of the things that we might look to center our lives around are wonderful gifts from God. And we thank God for them, but they're not big enough to be at the center. Some of us, of course, are still looking. Some of us are exploring the world, still saying, I think somewhere out there is a golden calf who can save me. A created thing that will deliver on the promises it makes. And so the Israelites in this story provide us with a very powerful warning. And we're going to read from it. It's kind of a challenging message in that sense. There's good news in it too. Um, You have to hang in there. But I I think it is a challenge for us to perhaps at times to reflect and say, what's the day, if there is in my life a big golden cow somewhere, what would it be? And what might God be speaking to me about doing about it? We're going to read the whole of Exodus 32. It's quite a long reading relative to the passages we'd often read from, but it's such a powerful story. I think we need to hear it all. And we're going to read the whole of Exodus chapter 32, beginning at verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt... We don't know what's become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off their rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people whom you've brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They've made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I've seen these people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, Oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from the disaster against this people. Remember Abraham, Isaac and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he'd spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. Tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There's a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It's not the sound of shouting for victory, or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. 
And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they'd made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, for they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you've been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing on you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You've sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people have sinned a great sin. They made for themselves gods of gold. But now... If you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you've written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I've spoken to you. Behold, my angels shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. This is the word of God. Now it's a long passage, isn't it? And it's a what it, it tells us a lot, I think, a lot that is both very important in Israel's story and in our own. But I want us to see, just to see three things today, which I hope to be able to draw out and make sense of the whole story and what it has to teach us about idolatry then and now. And that is to notice, first of all, why they make and why we make idols. Why did they do it? And why do we? And secondly, to notice what idols do to us. And then thirdly, to notice how we get free. Why do we make idols? What do idols then do to us once we have made them? And then how do you get free from that? And so I think the opening paragraph actually sheds some fascinating light, firstly, on why Israel make idols at all and why we do. And Israel, it's just weird explanations in some ways, a strange story, because you think they've just been liberated through the Red Sea. They've just seen 10 plagues. Why are they so bothered about worshiping another god? And the strange thing we find in verse 1 is that they partly made a, an idol because they were impatient, which is a really weird reason. I think it's true for us too, as I'll show you in a minute, but they, they'd make an idol because they're impatient. Right? Verse 1, when the people saw that Moses delayed from coming down the mountain, the people gathered and said, we don't know where Moses has gone, you make us a god. Right? We, they gave up waiting, that's why. One of the reasons they made an idol is because they were impatient. They've grown tired of waiting. And what we've got to realize in this story is they have waited no more than five and a half weeks. Right? We know that from the chronology. So the most they could have been waiting is five and a half weeks. And they've decided, you know what, we're done. We're done waiting. 400 years of slavery delivered from it by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Ten plagues, which we all saw. We walked through the Red Sea. We, found, we drink water from the rock. Manna is coming out of the sky every day. To be honest, we're done waiting. And what an extraordinary motive. And yet, 
Is there not something of that in the way that you and I process the worship of God and are tempted to worship other things? You see, what happens is we want something now. We don't like the idea that if you worship the real God, you have to wait for him. You, in fact, we may have even sung songs about it today. We certainly often do. We wait on the Lord. That's a, that's a part of Christian worship. I've got to wait for his time. And sometimes I'm going to say, I want this. I want the breakthrough now. And you haven't got it. And then you say, you know, I'm giving up waiting. I will make a God who will give me what I want now. It's like, where is he? He's been up there for five and a half weeks. How dare he? I'm going to make a God that will deliver exactly what I want when I want it. Now, there is something challengingly familiar about that, I think. The idea that you make an idol out of impatience. But Israel did. I want a God who delivers when I tell him to. And if I don't get that, I'm going to look to another God and make my own. That's one of the reasons we make idols, is impatience. Another reason that you find in the very next verse, actually, in verse 2, Israel makes a God, makes an idol, because they want a God who is visible and tangible and physical. They're not interested in the idea of worshipping an invisible God, and that presents many challenges. So I have a Three children, and they're all like nine and under. And I recognize the challenge of parenting children into leading children into faith in an invisible God. Because every small child knows this is weird. We're talking to somebody who can't see. Israel, I think, have some of that. They're like, where is our God? Come on, I can't see him. And of course, you've got to remember that Israel has been in slavery for 400 years in a nation where people worship visible gods. So you've had four centuries of that to come out and in the space of a couple of weeks to detox from that sort of physical idolatry to the point you can worship an invisible God is a stretch. And so they say, Aaron, make us a God we can see. And immediately they're taking off their earrings, their gold, they're melting it all down and say, okay, we need a thing. I don't just want convict. I don't want faith. I don't want the substance of things hoped for and the substance of things not seen. I want a thing. I want to actually be able to look and poke and prod it and go, there's my gods. The gods of the nations have cow gods and frog gods. Why can't I? So they, they make an idol because they're impatient. They make an idol because they want a God they can see. They want a God that's here now and they want a God that's here that I can touch and interact with. And another reason they want a God uh, an idol, if you like, is because they want a God who enables them to do whatever they want. Right? They want a God who's here, a God who's now, and a God who will give them what they want. And this is, I think, what you find in verse 6. And uh, I just think it's... I'm going to throw this out there. It's interesting that this is on the day of the World Cup final that we read this verse. And the people sat down to drink and eat and rose up to play. Yeah? I mean, that's, that's basically what they were. Now, you might think, ah, that's got nothing to do with football, and of course it doesn't. But the point is, in Israel's story, that from the ancient times, this has been read, and I think rightly, as a description of they had a feast that also involved sex as well. Like, it probably rising, rising up to play is probably a euphemism. And if you read other stories of Israel's idolatry in the desert, you'll find that it often involves sex as well. And so probably this is saying they, they had a feast, they ate and drank a lot, and then they had sex, and that was, a, that was their festival. And of course, that in a sense is Israel saying our worship of this new idol now allows us to do the sorts of things that in our sin we really want to do anyway. Isn't that convenient? And if your God can't do, or do anything or say anything, who's in charge? Right? You build a golden statue and worship that, and it can't speak, it can't correct or confront or has no power, you're in charge. Does anybody um, have that thing with a kid where they have a doll and the, the, ch- the child 
wants things for themselves and finds a way of getting it through the doll, right? So the child would say sort of thing like, so Max really likes a bit of chocolate, mummy. And then mum has to come and give chocolate and say, it's for Max. And then, of course, we'll pretend to give it to Max and then we'll eat the chocolate. Say, Max would really like some milk, mummy. And Max, can Max have some sweeties? And Max wants to do it. And Max doesn't want to go to bed now. You have that kind of... I'm, looking, I'm talking to people as if I go, no, my child has always, has never done that. But actually, that's quite common, isn't it? That children will use a thing as a way of trying to control, but they create the object effectively as a proxy to get what they want. Is there not something suspiciously like that about the way that you and I fashion God in our image? But what we do is we say, I think my God would really want me to be happy. So I'm sure that what God really wants me to do is to leave this marriage relationship and to go off with some other, somebody else, because that would make me happy. And I'm sure what God wants is, so I bet. Now, I'm sure that that is, a, as a hypothetical, may not be the issue for you. It may not be the issue for me. But the principle of projecting our desires onto another created object and using that as a way of getting what we want is as old as the hills. And it's what Israel do right here. I'm sure that the God would like us to sit down to eat and drink and rise up to play, whatever that means. Of course, I'd, we'd, we'd love to do that because we, the God wants us to do it. That's how the God wants us to worship. And there's a lot of people that, as we were remarking just now, you look out this window and you see the city of London just stretched out. And you think, wow, that, there's a lot of people in this city for whom I, I'm sure that God, if he was real, would like me to do that. I'm sure that the gods or God or whoever he is really wants me to to love this in this way or to work in this way. I'm sure God would like that. And what we're doing is we're creating an idol, aren't we? We're saying, this is, this is me in and through the doll. We're going to make this the way in which we express and control our desires. And in a sense, Israel is really saying, by worshipping that, I'm going to be in control of the time scale. I'm going to be in control of where it physically is. And it's going to tell me to do everything that very conveniently I wanted to do anyway. So that's why we make idols, I think. It, the same thing is still true. You see, you and I don't, we want God now, we want God here, and we want God to give us what we want. And if we don't get that, we'll make another one. What we don't want sometimes is the God who is holy, the God who is mysterious and transcendent and sovereign and other, and may not tell us that what we want to believe is what we should believe. He may well tell us, that's wrong. I don't want you doing that. He may well tell us, if you do that, you will die. He may well tell us things we don't want to hear, and he may well tell them on his schedule and in his presence, not ours. And that may trouble us. And it requires, to worship the real God, requires trust and submission and patience and obedience and deferred gratification. So many of us want to make idols instead, because it's easier. We make God substitutes who we can, quote, worship on our terms, with our agenda, on our schedule. So I hope this is in some ways unsettling in a sense, because we may or may not be wrestling with that now, but we can probably think of areas in our lives, whether now or in the past, where we process desires of ours through recourse to another kind of object that we are tempted to center our whole lives around and trust for deliverance. And that's what Israel did. That's why we make idols. The second thing we've then got to see in the story is that it's n- idolatry is not just a one-way street. It's not just that you make the idol. It's that even when the idol doesn't breathe or speak, the idol does something to you simply by being worshipped. And idols do something to us. It's not just that we make them. 
Because some people, of course, think idolatry, what I've just described, is harmless. A lot of people in this city would say, so what? If you project your views onto God and then do that, it doesn't matter. Whatever makes you happy, right? But this passage shows us otherwise. One very obvious point to start with, for instance, is that idols require sacrifice. That's what happens when you set up a proxy God. They require sacrifice. Now, verse 3 they have to sacrifice in order to build it. They literally take the rings off the uh, rings of gold that were in their ears and bring them to Aaron to melt down. So it's expensive to establish the idol. And then once they've built the idol, they then offer sacrifices. Verse 6, and they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. Idols require sacrifice to keep them happy, effectively, even if they're not real. Idols always require sacrifice. Now, for some of you, you might be thinking, so, okay, hang on, what do you mean? How would that work in, the life of, in my life? Let's say it wasn't a physical image, and I don't offer, if you like, I don't burn a, a, an animal in offering to it. How does that work for me? Well, I was just with a friend of mine yesterday evening, and he had told me a story previously about how he had realized that a, he'd made an idol out of a pedal board, which is not something I... I'm not a guitarist. I wouldn't get excited about a pedal board, Gethin. Exciting pedal boards? Pretty exciting. You can see, like his face, like, yes, pedal boards, yes. Now, it's something that makes guitars make different sounds, I guess. And he, but he realized he was a young man. He didn't have much money, but he was really, really obsessed. with. He was very techy and very musical and just was pretty obsessed with this thing and ended up making quite a lot of sacrifices in order to buy it to the point that he was making poor financial choices, getting into debt, sacrificing other things he should have been doing with his income and then stopped doing in order to get hold of this thing because he really wanted it and it was going to bring him happiness and bring him joy. So he sacrificed for it. And you might say, well, that's a fairly trivial example. It is, but notice the structure of idolatry is that in order for me to get happiness out of this thing, I will need to make sacrifices in order to get it. Much more serious example, another friend of mine who was telling me of how her mum had left her and left their, her sister and brother and, the, and her husband years and years back, and now has lived her entire life. Obviously, she, she weighs up the, the pros and cons and then thinks, I really want to go off with this guy, but I love my kids, I love my family, but I think I'm going to sacrifice the right to continue living with my family in the family home and parenting my children in order to have this. And that's a much more serious example of where actually looking for happiness in this costs you all of that. And that's what idols do. Sometimes the cost you might think was trivial. It might be going into debt for a short while. Sometimes the cost of the idol might well be far greater. It might cost you your family. But idols will always require sacrifice. Because if you're going to find joy and meaning and hope in this thing, you're going to prioritize it over anything else. Because that's what's going to deliver on its promises. Now the flip side of that is, of course, worshiping God requires sacrifice as well. Which is why Jesus dies on the cross and it's the center of our faith. And it's why you and I have to give up everything, the pearl of great price. He finds it and then has to sell everything he has in order to get it. Right? That's the shape of Christianity too. The difference is though, that when you give up everything to follow Jesus, instead of being like an idol who just takes and takes and takes and gives nothing back, you give up everything in order to follow the God who gives and gives and gives again. The one who gives you immeasurably more than you can ask or think. And because that's the nature of God, even though you sacrifice, you can never outgive the God, the Father of lights from whom there's no shadow or turning due to change, the one who gives all gifts. And because he's like that, you can't out-sacrifice him. Whereas with the idol, you make your sacrifices, and actually you, didn't, you never get what the idol is promising to deliver. So idols require sacrifices. Not just then, 
but still today. Idols also corrupt the worshiper. Look at, look at verse 7 a minute. The Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. And that's a common theme in Scripture, that idols corrupt the kind of person who worships them. And the way they do that is they make you become like them. That's what idolatry does. You become like what you worship. This is Psalm 115, verse 8. People who make and trust idols will become like them. That's That's what happens. So you set up a new God, and then you realize, I've become like this thing. Now, the, the flip, again, the flip side is you actually become like what you worship, whether the thing you worship is good or bad. So if you worship God, you become like God. You, you be, from one degree of glory into another, as you behold the glory of the Lord, you are transformed into his likeness. That's wonderful. On the other hand, if you behold the likeness and worship the likeness of something created, you will become like that something. And that's much scarier. This is the first time in Scripture that God calls Israel stiff-necked. Look at verse 9. The Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Isn't it interesting? They've just made a cow with a very stiff neck, made of bronze, unable to bend, unable to bow or submit, but just stands there proudly, unable to move, unable to yield, and God starts speaking of Israel as a stiff-necked people. You've become like what you worship. You build this, you build this stiff-necked cow, and now you've become a stiff-necked people as well. And it's a theme that runs throughout Scripture that you become like what you praise. The glorious thing, of course, you worship the living God, you become like Him. Hallelujah! That's why we do. That's why we do what we are doing right now. Why we worship God together because we want to become like Him. But actually, underneath it, the reverse is also true. And if you worship money, in the end, you become like it. You become shiny. And dead on the inside, just like money. Right? That's what happens. You worship. Uh, I, I love the example in the, the, the Narnia stories of the, in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. There's this obnoxious young boy, Eustace. He's kind of about twelve years old, a bit of a nuisance, and what kind of kid you just want to, you know. And uh, and there's a scene where he comes across this hoard of treasure on an island, and he lies down in it and starts fantasizing about what it would be to own it all. And he wakes up and he's turned into a dragon. And it's the story. The point C.S. Lewis is making is. You become like what you worship. You became greedy and desirous. And as a result, you've actually become just like it. And he ends up with this bangle stuck on his arm. And in the end, Aslan, the lion, has to strip off with his claws all of the dragon scales and make him anew in order to wash him clean. It's the, it's the way idols work. That's an obvious Christian fiction example. But actually, I was recently reading um, Joseph Conrad's novel, Heart of Darkness, which is a sort of story about the it's a sort of savage description of the evils of colonialism in the Belgian Congo and what happened as people were searching for ivory. And, uh, and it's, a, it's a very um, brutal telling of it because what he does, if you've seen Apocalypse Now, the story is based on Heart of Darkness. And the idea is they travel up this river to find this enigmatic Mr. Kurtz, who's the guy played by Marlon Brando in, in the Apocalypse Now. And, uh, and they go up, they're going up the river to find this guy and they are all obsessed with ivory, of plundering the world for ivory. And that's why they're all there. And it, when you finally meet him, Joseph Conrad portrays him as this guy who, is, who looks like ivory. He's, like sh- he's bald, he's white, shiny skin, everything is bright white. And there's nothing wrong with being bald, just want to say that's not the point he's making. But the idea is he looks like what he has been worshipping. And everybody there is, and I think he uses the language in the book, of, it's like they were worshipping ivory. 
And actually, there's a power. That's from a very atheist writer, by the way. He's making the point, you become like what you worship. If you're obsessed with a thing, you will become like it. If you worship casual sex, you become like casual sex. You become trivially and temporarily stimulated, but unable to maintain the things that actually create meaningful longing connection with another person. And you become so... Um, trivialized by those one-off bouncy sexual experiences that you're unable to build long-term lasting happiness with a, with a single person. And, you know, Peter Stringfellow died recently. I don't know if you know that name, the sort of strip club owner guy. I had dinner with him once about 20 years ago, not in a strip club. I would like hasten to add it. Was a, we were in a debate together and, uh, and I had dinner with a guy and I was like, you have, I, even then at age 20, I thought you have become like what you have done with your life. You have given your life to prioritizing short-term and exploiting, exploiting young women, basically, but, but trivializing both her and the men who come. And, and I think you've become like that. You're just a, a light, shallow person who I don't think has got the, the roots of joy. I, I find that I'm, what, I'm talking to you thinking, I'm pretty young and you're pretty old, but this seems like a foolish use of a life to me. And there, it's true everywhere. You, people become like what they worship. If you, Russell Brand just Last week, I think it was probably on Tuesday or something, just put out a tweet in which he described his journey of promiscuity and how he came to see this has not delivered on its promises. And I can see being addicted to having sex with different women is basically like being addicted to heroin because he's, he's done both. And again, I was challenged. I thought, wow, he has seen what's missing. And he's seen that in many ways, as you give yourself to something, it corrupts you. It turns you into like something like itself. And that's what Aaron does here. Aaron has become so corrupted that he started blaming other people. And this, for those of us who've come out of backgrounds where we've been addicted to something, we'll probably recognize this, that one of the things that we do when we're addicted to things is we begin to blame something else for the addiction. And often we'll disguise it and hide it and act like it wasn't really what we did and blame. It's not always true, but often true. Aaron does it here. I just, I don't know, these people, they said, you must make us a god. So I just, I don't know, I chucked all this gold stuff in and then a calf came out. And we kind of laughed when that was read in the scripture. But that's the thing that we do. Idols corrupt us. They erode us from the inside. And then, of course, having demanded sacrifice and corrupted us, they then bring upon us divine judgment. And in this story, that means they have to drink the idol ground to powder. Then 3,000 of them are killed with the sword by the Levites. And then God sends a plague. They are, that's a tough bit of the story to read, right? But they come under divine judgment for what they've done. Many of them die. So an idol requires a sacrifice, it corrupts you, and then it brings God's judgment upon you. Now, so far, I think you'd agree that's pretty depressing. I mean, you guys are really glad you came. Like, oh, right. All right, so I make idols because of this and this, and then they bring judgment upon me, and we bring idols... If you like, we, we make idols because they, we, want, we want control. They end up controlling us and oh no. But of course, in the failure, in Israel's fall, in Israel's emptiness and loss, what the good news is, what we find about the nature of true freedom in this story and what then God does about it. Right? This is where the hope comes because having hopefully beginning to consider like, is that, where is mine? Is there a golden, maybe not a, I'm, I'm, I hope if I said to you, what is the thing that you sacrifice for and you're a Christian? You'd say, that's God. What is the thing into whose image you're being conformed? I would say, Jesus. That's great if that's true, if you're a believer in Jesus. But even so, you may be able to recognize other things going, but there's a risk that it could easily become that. Or to be honest, I think in my weak moments, it's this. 
What do we do about that? And how do we get free? And the power of this story is that we learn something immensely important about the nature of what true freedom is for us. Right? Because in the contemporary West, we generally recognize that you need to be set free from external forces that might constrain your choices. Right? Which in Israel's case is slavery. I don't want to be having somebody standing over my shoulder with a whip or a gun telling me, you must do this. I want to be free from that and liberated to choose what I want to do. That big tick, right, in, our, in this city. But at the same time, what we often don't notice is that we also need to be set free from things that internally constrain us in order that we might be able to be free not just to choose, but to choose well, right? So it's not just that you need to be free to make any decision you want because no one's got a gun to your head. It's also that you need to be free from the things in here that might make you make terrible choices that don't lead you to flourish. Sin, the flesh, the worship of idols, Right, so you may have seen the Hunger Games, and if you haven't, I hope I'll be able to show, illustrate it enough anyway. So you may know that um, in Suzanne Collins' novels, the Hunger Games uh, trilogy, and then the movies. So this is Katniss Everdeen, played by Jennifer Lawrence, and she is among with a whole load of people in this, this imaginary world, this dystopian future. She is constrained, and they are constrained in the districts by the normal external oppression that you get in societies that are totalitarian. So there's guns, there's fences, there's beatings and floggings and torture and all the rest, and cameras everywhere. And so she is constrained by external forces from doing what she wants. But there's another group of people in the Hunger Games who in many ways are more tragic than they are. And that is the people who live in the capital, the center, the capital city, who are equally enslaved, but not enslaved externally, but enslaved internally. Because the reason they are tragic figures, and you can even see it by looking at their faces to some degree, is that they become enslaved as well to things like glutting. So they, they binge eat, and then they vomit it all up, and then they carry on eating, because they can. And they just spend the whole time living as if reality TV is the entire world, and they are enslaved to lust and laziness and gluttony and foolishness, and they are empty, tragic people. And in many ways, as you watch the movie or read the story, you feel sympathy for these guys just as much, if not more, as you do for these guys, because these guys are kind of more human. They're being oppressed, but there's still the thing that human, makes humans special in the soul hasn't gone. Whereas over here, you think, this is just inane. And if you've read 1984, you've got this kind of vision. If you've read Brave New World, you've got this kind of vision. So there's sort of way, different ways of describing what humans can be trapped by. And the message of Scripture is that you need to be free from both. In Israel, you see, enslaved in this sense. They're enslaved in the kind of, I'm being oppressed with the guns and the whips and whatever. No guns, but you get the idea. But what happens is, having been liberated from that, they come out of the desert and immediately build a golden calf and start becoming enslaved to the idolatry of their own sinful fleshly desires. And the Bible's like, you need to get free from both. You need to be free from slavery and golden calves. And this is what, if you're like, you need to be free from the devil and from the flesh, from death and sin. And this is what the Judeans debating Jesus didn't get in John 8. The Judeans were like, we've, we've never been enslaved to anybody. They're like these guys going, we've never been enslaved to anybody. What are you talking about? And Jesus says, I tell you the truth. If you sin, you are a slave to sin. And if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. That is, you'll be free not only from the things that oppress you from the outside, but from the things that oppress you from the inside as well. That's what you need. You need liberty at the deep, all the way down, not just from the things that trap you from the outside. And how does that happen? It happens by Jesus doing what Moses does in this story only better. What Moses tries to do to save the people is he prays 
for the people to be forgiven, and then he offers to substitute himself for them. Did you notice that bit of the story? Please, let them go and then blot me out of the book that you've written. That's what Moses, he tries to be a substitute. But God says, no, the people who've sinned are going to get judged, not you. But the day will come when another priest will come, a priest whose sacrifice is blemish-free and whose prayer for the people never stops. And when he substitutes himself for the people and says, "Let blot me out of the book so that they might go free, God says, yes. God says, I will allow you to substitute for all of these people. So we build our golden calves and we make a substitute for God. And then God comes and makes a substitute for us. We build our golden calves and we become enslaved. The son comes as a substitute so that we might be free indeed. Hallelujah. Father, we thank you so much for this amazing gospel in which you substitute for us and you rescue us from the idols we make, whatever they are. Lord, I pray that even as we respond in worship and as we perhaps pray and minister to one another in a moment, that you would liberate us from any worship to idols that might be catching our soul, that in some way might be leading us into places that are going to degrade and destroy and corrupt us. Lord, we want to become like what we worship, and so we worship you again. We say we will serve no other gods but you, and we pray that you would free us such that we are free indeed. In Jesus' name, amen.